it's been really interesting timing starting the book of Matthew uh, heading into the Christmas season. And it's been good for me personally, I know, just to kind of refocus, recenter on the reason why we gather together, the reason why we exchange gifts, uh, both big and small. And last week, we talked about the incredible story of the Magi and these powerful men from the East, how they had traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to find a baby. And not just to find a baby, but to fall down and worship him, to present him with those kingly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And there's an animated Christmas story. One of, so our Christmas traditions, we like to watch movies, right, during the Christmas season. One of our favorites is an animated movie called The Star, right? We just watched it a couple days ago. In it, kind of silly, but the, the uh, camels are arguing over whether or not they're going to a baby shower or a birthday party because they're bringing all these gifts. And at the end, they find out they were actually doing both. They were going to a birthday party and a, you know, and a shower, baby shower. Um, but if you think back to it, they probably weren't aware at the prophetic nature of what these gifts symbolized. That they was going to symbolize the different offices that the Messiah would fill in the king, the king of kings and the priest of priests, and also the man that would become the sacrifice for all of mankind. And we talked about this amazing act of worship and the recognition of his kingship and how we have to understand, just have a little a bit of an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that should lead us into very meaningful worship, uh, true worship. And we talked about how that true worship comes from a humble heart, that these guys were advisors to kings, king makers, and here they are bowing down to a king. And then true worship that responds appropriately. Uh, these men did not have a perfect picture of who Jesus was, who the Messiah would be. But what they did know, they acted on. And what they did know, they followed and they worshiped. And you and I do have a perfect picture of who the Messiah is and what he's done for us. And sometimes we still neglect to worship him and honor him the way that we should. And we do have a perfect picture. So true worship responds appropriately. And then last week, we talked about how true worship is costly. Um, it would have cost the Magi time, would have cost them security, uh, financially, to have given up these months to go find Jesus. And, you know, oftentimes we show up at church on Sundays, and we think, you know, I'm ready for my refill. Like, I'm here to get something from the Lord. Um, and it, and it, that is part of it, right? That's part of it. We do come to enter into his presence, but he also deserves to be worshipped, for us to bring something to him, a sacrifice of praise. Um, if we enter into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, he will meet us there. It might cost us time. It might cost us hobbies. Uh, sometimes relationships, uh, finances, but all of that is nothing compared to the knowledge of knowing him. Um, we talked about that last week as well. The Magi wanted to see him face to face, and when they did, they bowed down and worshiped. And hopefully that's said of us, that as we seek him, seek him to see his face, that we are considered true worshipers. As I was mapping out the weeks, as I was looking at Matthew and just kind of going through the sections of scripture and saying, okay, you know, it looks like this is when this portion is going to fall. I really tried hard to figure out a way to not do this portion of scripture the day after Christmas. 
because it's part of the tragic story of the nativity. But as I began to think about it, it actually is quite fitting because you have this extravagant act of worship by the wise men, directly followed by the events that we're going to read today. We celebrated his birth yesterday, and today we're going to take a look at the reality of what happened. This is Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23 today. The flight to Egypt. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all of that region who were under two years old, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But then Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The visit from the Magi, if you think about it, would have been a huge encouragement to Joseph and Mary. Uh, They had certainly heard from the angels They had seen the shepherds that had come to worship him. And then a year or two had gone by. Have you ever gotten a word from the Lord and gotten confirmation? And then it was a while before that actually came to pass. And you start to kind of second guess yourself a little bit. You're like, did I, did I hear that right? Did I make that up? Um, So this would have been a huge encouragement when the wise men show up to worship Jesus, but their happiness was short-lived because the next piece of news was that, you know, not joy and hope, but danger and urgency was coming. The danger of Herod and the urgency that they needed to get out of town, that they were supposed to head to Egypt. That peace on earth and goodwill towards men was now vengeance and death as soldiers replaced the shepherds. Um, A silent night had become a screaming night. Sometimes in our lives, the spiritual highs, are almost immediately followed by some real earthly lows. Spiritual highs to earthly lows, from the mountaintops to the valleys. I've experienced this in my own life. Um, In Luke 9, Jesus takes Peter and James and John. They go up this mountain. And when they get to the top, they're standing there, and Jesus starts to glow. Like a little bit of his glory started to leak out. And he started to glow, and they just kind of lose it. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. And Jesus is talking with two of the most famous people in their history. And Peter can't take it anymore. And he just blurts out. He's like, this is awesome. Let's build some tents and just hang out here. Like, let's live here on the mountain. And as if that's not enough, then a voice, the voice of God booms out. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, (laughs) stop talking, listen to what he has to say. And there's a lesson there 
Um, not that we are blurting things out, but at least in my mind, trying to figure things out and the thoughts that are going through my head. And sometimes those drowned out the voice of the Lord and him saying, look, Nathan, calm down. Just listen for the Lord. You don't need to be talking right now. Listen for his voice. Then we have this incredible experience where they come down the mountain. And as soon as they step off the mountain, Jesus is met by a crowd of people. And not just a crowd of people, but a man who's crying out to him for Jesus to heal his son, who's demon-possessed. And he asked the disciples to do it, but they couldn't do it. And this is an interesting part to me, because this is what Jesus says. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He just came off this spiritual high up on the mountain with the disciples. He comes down into the valley, and immediately he's met by... Un, you know, a lack of faith. He's like, how long am I supposed to be with you guys in this unfaithful state? And Jesus heals the boy immediately. And it goes on to say that, you know, they asked Jesus, why weren't we able to cast it out? And Jesus said, you know, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And, you know, they could understand that. But what he was saying is, you know, you have to be ready all the time. Because if they said, well, if we knew this was going to happen, then obviously we would have prayed and fasted. But Jesus is saying, This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, which means you need to be continually in prayer and, you know, taking in the practice of fasting, denying yourself, taking time to focus on the Lord. That's why Jesus got away often by himself to focus on the Lord, to focus on the Father. Um, Okay, from the mountaintop experience to the valley of trouble. In Luke 9, 43, it goes on to say this, and all were astonished at the majesty of God... But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. This is after they came down off the mountain into the valley. Jesus heals the boy. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then in verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. Jesus comes down the mountain. He says, how long am I supposed to be with you guys? And he tells them, guys, I'm going to be arrested. It's going to be bad. And the disciples are like, okay, whatever. Who do you think is the best one of us? That's how they react. And I don't know if you've seen this happen too, but sometimes you come home from church or you come home from a retreat or a Bible study and all of a sudden it feels like all hell breaks loose. Right? You just had this spiritual high, and the, and the enemy immediately follows that up with an attack. Those times of testing are always going to come, but our job is to stick close to Jesus. The disciples didn't understand it. They stuck close to Jesus. Our happiness may be gone at that point because of the trial that has come our way, but we don't have to lose our joy. We talked about that in Philippians, about how we have to make the choice to rejoice. We have to hold on to that because we're still walking with him and try not to get distracted. That's what the disciples did. They got distracted by their own self-interest. Um, but what I tend to do in those situations, I say, Lord, I just came off this amazing experience with you, this incredible encounter. Can't you just perform a miracle or something like that to get me out of it? That would be really, really great for me personally. Um, God could have protected Jesus and his parents in a number of different ways, but he chose to do so in a very ordinary and seemingly unmiraculous way. He gave them instructions to go down to Egypt, but they had to carry it out. Like, they still had to get there on their own. 
God has given us instructions in his word, but we still have to carry it out on our own. We still have to walk that out practically because we get to partner with him. That's what we get to do. We get to partner with God. God will do the things that God can do, but we have to do the things that we can do. There was a saying that I heard once that said, without him, I can't, but without me, he won't, right? Without him, I can't, but without me, he won't. He'll do the things that he can do, but we need to do the things that we can do. There's a responsibility there for us. So the Magi leave and Mary and Joseph head out. It was about 75 miles to the border of Egypt from where they were, 70 to 75 miles. That's a long way, but that was just to the border. Then they traveled at least another 100 miles to safety, 175 miles. That's about from here to Springfield, if you were going to walk. Now, I put it into Google because I was curious, how long would it take to walk from here to Springfield? Well, three days if you didn't stop, right? Three days nonstop, you're going to stop. Obviously, it was difficult terrain. Obviously, they had a toddler with them. You tried going to Walmart with a toddler, it's going to take you forever to get out of there. They're traveling 170 plus miles with a toddler over rough terrain. It's, they would have taken them at least a week, seven to 10 days, just to cover this distance. A very difficult, very slow journey. Not miraculous, hard. Sometimes we ask, why is this so hard? We were never promised that this was going to be easy. If they did, somebody lied to you. It's not easy. It's hard. Why did the angel tell them to go to Egypt? Why not any other place that they could have fled to? Um, I didn't know this till this week. I'm not the Bible answer man. I get to learn some of this stuff at the same time you guys do. This is pretty cool. Uh, I always thought, you know, maybe they were just sent there by, you know, randomly. Like, get, you know, go down to Egypt. Egypt's a symbol of the world. But this is pretty cool. God had made preparations for them ahead of time, obviously. Nothing he does is random. There's always a purpose in everything that he does. Listen to this. When Alexander the Great, we've already talked about him a little bit, when he had conquered that part of the world, there were a lot of Jewish refugees. We talked about how the kings in the north and the kings in the south were battling and they were going back and forth and how Israel was caught in between them and there were lots of displaced Jews. And so what he had done, it's a really cool story that I can't get into with Alexander and the Jews. He actually created a city, you know, a sanctuary city in Egypt called Alexandria. Very humbly, he named it after himself. And he created this city. It was a place of safety, a place of opportunity. But you see, the Jewish population in Alexandria at that time, scholars tell us, were between 400,000 to a million Jews living in Alexandria at the time. That's incredible. I'd never heard that before. God sent them to Egypt. They go to Alexandria. He has made preparations for them ahead of time. And just like he does for you and me, we live here. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. They were living there in Egypt, but they weren't from there. They were just passing through. Now, they obviously would have used the treasure that the wise men had left them to help them with the journey and help them get through the season that we don't know how long uh, would have taken them. Could have been a couple months, could have been a couple years. But Joseph, being a carpenter and being among his own people in a huge city like that, probably would have found work rather easily. But they were to stay there until they had received further instruction. Um, This is important. When we receive instruction, we need to do it. (laughs) Sounds very simple, but we need to do it. Uh, There are times when we may not be hearing from the Lord. We feel like we're not getting any direction, or maybe we're seeking opportunities to, to serve for the Lord, and it just doesn't seem like they're opening up. Usually a good thing to do is to go back and see, have I done the last thing that he asked me to do? 
Like, what was the last thing I heard him say, and have I done it? What is the thing that I know I'm supposed to be doing, and have I completed that? If you haven't, go back and do that thing, and then listen to what he wants to say. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. We talked about last week how vengeful and how jealous and suspicious Herod was. And when he became troubled at the news that there was another king, all of Jerusalem became troubled with him. Because when Herod got troubled, it usually meant bloodshed. And that's what happened in this case. Uh, He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small town, not very big. And this whole event wouldn't have taken very long. It would have happened rather quickly. Uh, They're only looking for the male children. They're only looking for ones that are under two years old. Uh, A pretty horrific scene. It's really hard to imagine it. I mean, we watch movies sometimes where they just depict a little bit of it and it's hard to watch. Um, Hard to believe that somebody would go to those lengths to stop a prophecy. That they would go to that much, you know, bloodshed to try and keep hold of their rule. To keep hold of their control, their power. Nobody's going to take my right to rule away from me. But what happens in our society today? Um, People don't want their rights infringed upon. They want to keep control over their lives. And so what we have done as a society is offer them a way to eliminate the problem. And so we have babies that are slaughtered in our country every single day. And I looked it up just because I was curious In 2019 alone, 630,000 babies aborted in this country. Just in the United States, just legal abortions that are reported, 630,000. Just so we can maintain control, so we can maintain power over our lives, so nobody can tell us what to do. In a small town like Bethlehem, it probably would have been less than 20, but obviously just one is too many. And Matthew tells us this is what was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Rama is actually a Hebrew word that means height or high place. And Jacob buried his wife Rachel there in Rama, a place that overlooked Bethlehem. Uh, this was referred to Rama. Rachel Uh, It's interesting, she died giving birth to her son, Benjamin. Uh, Jacob was married to two women. We know he was married to Leah. That was the one that he got tricked into marrying. And then there was Rachel, the one that he really loved. And Leah was having kids, like, left and right, and Rachel hadn't conceived yet. And one day, in her frustration, she yelled out at Jacob. She said, give me children or I'll die. That's what she said to Jacob. And not long after that, she had Joseph. And then a few years later, she had her son, Benjamin. And it's interesting because during the course of the delivery, it became apparent that Rachel wasn't going to make it through the delivery. She was actually dying as she was giving birth. And as she was dying, she said, I want to name him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, is what she wanted to name him. And Jacob said, no, we're not. We're naming him Benjamin, son of my right hand. That's what we're going to name. He's not going to be a son of sorrow. He's going to be the son of my right hand. So we need to be real careful what we try to demand from the Lord because we just might get it. She said, give me children or I'll die. And she did end up 
dying. Uh, there was, I think it was in the Greek culture, they would say that when the gods wanted to punish someone, they would give them what they wanted. So we have to be careful about the things that we try to demand from God. She died and Jacob wept, but now in this prophecy it says that Rachel's weeping. Why is Rachel, how is that even possible? This area that is referred to as Ramah was a staging area, actually, for the Jewish captives when they were getting ready to be taken off to Babylon. So when they were rounding up all of these Jewish kids, they had taken them to this place, and the mothers were watching their children literally be gathered and sent off to a foreign land, sent off to Babylon. Daniel and his friends would have only been teenagers when they were rounded up and sent off. Um, And so Rachel, or the mothers of these Jewish kids were weeping for their children, and now they're weeping again over the children in Bethlehem. This was a place of separation. It was a place of separation. Um, The arrival of Christ will always cause pain. It will cause a separation to take place. First and foremost, it's separation that takes place in our spirits. Uh, The Holy Spirit is now living inside of us, and you're going to have a war going on between your spirit man and your flesh. Your flesh has been in there for a long time, and he's not going quietly. So now all of a sudden, there's a war raging. There's a battle raging inside the believer, but I can tell you that people in the world, they don't wrestle with spiritual issues. Like, they don't mind, they're not thinking about whether or not the things that they're doing are sinful. They don't have that struggle. We do. As Christians, we're called to crucify our flesh, pain, And then we're called to walk away from our old man, to reckon him dead. We are now dead to the world and alive to Christ. There is a separation that takes place. I mean, even even my dad was saved as a young man, and there was a separation that took place in his family. Uh, He was considered, I think, the black sheep of his family, and for years it was difficult. There can be a separation in your family. Uh, In Matthew 4, Jesus is walking by the sea, and he sees James and John, and he calls out to them. He says, follow me. And it specifically tells us that they left their nets and their father and followed Jesus. Caused a separation even in their family. He didn't really leave the family business. That's what my dad did. He left the family business. That caused a rift. James and John left the family business to follow Jesus. That was not an easy thing. In Matthew 10, Jesus is telling his disciples that there will be persecution if you choose to follow Jesus. But don't fear man. Don't fear the one that can simply harm your body. Fear the one that can actually kill your soul. And he says this, Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against father, a daughter against mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses my life or loses his life for my sake will keep it. Um, This is the upside down kingdom of God. If we lose our life for his sake, we're going to find it. Not peace on earth but a sword. This is interesting because the angel came and proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? That's what God offers in the person of Jesus Christ if we follow him, but it is going to require a separation to take place. 
So Jeremiah prophesies hundreds of years earlier that there's going to be weeping in Ramah. First weeping over the deportation of their children, and then again over the children in Bethlehem. But that's not the end of the story. We talked about this on Friday night. That was not the end of the story. He also prophesies that one day the people would return. So Jeremiah 31, 16, Thus saith the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. This is the reason why Habakkuk was so upset. Jeremiah assures them there will be a day when everything is made right. Yes, the innocent are suffering with the wicked right now, but there will be a day when deliverance comes because he goes on to talk about God's new covenant with his people and by extension, the church, the new covenant that he makes with them. In Romans eleven twenty seven, Paul quotes Isaiah. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I talked about it a few weeks ago, but why is evil allowed to exist? Why doesn't God just wipe it out? Why does he allow it to exist? Well, ultimately, he allows it to exist to accomplish his purposes. We live in a broken, sinful, messed up world, but one day it's going to be made right. And that's why we, as Christ followers, can have joy in the midst of suffering because we walk with him and one day it's going to be made right. The rejection of Jesus started from the time that he was a baby, um, but deliverance was on the way. That's what it was heralding. Uh, Most people don't think of Bethlehem as a place of death. Uh, They think of Bethlehem as a place of life because that's where Jesus came from. And that's how it is with you and me. He comes into our life and he breathes life into it through forgiveness of our sins, brings us alive spiritually, and now we're dead to the world and we're alive to Christ. God kept them in Egypt until the death of Herod and whoever else may want to have killed him. But we're told by we're told by Jewish historians that Herod died rather gruesomely. Uh, it says that he was reported to have died from ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, and constant convulsions. That's a rough way to go. But probably a fitting end for somebody who was so rotten on the inside, literally. He couldn't find the peace that he thought he would gain by trying to wipe out the Messiah. And for people in our day who just want Jesus to disappear, who just want his influence to be wiped away out of culture, they will not have the peace that they think they're going to find. It may look like it on the outside, but inside, they're going to be eaten up. They have a hole inside them that only Jesus can fill. Uh, Without him, we're going to be eaten up with worry, with fear, with discontent, unforgiveness. And ultimately, we're going to be eaten up in a place, well, for those that choose not to follow Jesus, we'll be eaten up in a real place called hell. And he calls it a place where the worm will never die, is what Jesus calls it. Finally, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him it's time to go back home. It's time to return, which is the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. God brought his people out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land. Now he's calling Joseph and his family out of Egypt back to Israel. It took a lot of uh, courage for Moses to go back to, it, back, to, back to Egypt. And it would have taken a lot of courage for Joseph to take his family down to Egypt. But Egypt 
in the Bible is always a symbol of the what? The world, right? Jesus had to go into the world, into Egypt, to be able to free you and I from the world. He had to go there to free us. Moses had to go there to free the people and bring them back to the promised land. So Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, heads back to Israel. But when they get there, they discover that Herod's son is now in charge of Judea, over that area. And obviously he becomes concerned and the Lord speaks to him again. Apparently he wanted to stay there. I guess he liked it there in Bethlehem. His plan was to return and live there. Um, I can't imagine he wanted to go back to Nazareth, if you remember um, there were, everybody was whispering that, you know, Jesus was an illegitimate child, that Mary had gotten pregnant some other way, that she was lying, and Joseph taking her as his wife would have been a really difficult thing to do for him personally. And so I don't think he was really excited about going back to Nazareth, wanting to settle there in Bethlehem. But once they found that out, uh, and it was confirmed in a dream, they chose to keep going uh, all the way up to Galilee. This is the fourth time that God warns him in a dream. I think that's pretty cool. I would love it if the Lord would speak to me when I was sleeping. That would be great. Um, I don't, I'm the kind of person I actually don't have, I don't remember any dreams. They say we all dream about something. I don't remember any of my dreams. I would love it. That would be great. Um, I saw a t-shirt once that said, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. And, you know, he spoke to, to Joseph in the dreams. And he still speaks to people in dreams. He certainly does. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago, we have something major to decide, something important, something big that's weighing on our minds. Uh, We need to pray, and then we need to rest. We really do. We can't be consumed with thoughts of how to figure it out ourselves. I, am, I fall into this trap myself. I am the kind of person, I have plans A, B, and C all worked out to, uh, to try to figure things out. But what happens is sometimes I, that drowns out the voice of God and looking to him and praying and simply resting and getting his opinion on the matter. Because we get God's best when we let him decide. I would much rather have him decide than me decide. So we get his best when we let him decide. Pray, do the things that you can do, and then wait. Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So they settle in Nazareth. Matthew tells us this is yet another Old Testament prophecy that comes true. The weird thing is, is that we don't read this prophecy anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that he is going to be called a Nazarene. It's not in there. So, like, what do we do about that? That's kind of strange. Well, it doesn't say that it was written. It says that it was spoken of by the prophets. Not just one prophet, but plural. Prophets, plural. There were multiple prophets who said that he was going to be called a Nazarene. Now, it's not really a problem because oral tradition was huge in that culture. It was passed down from generation to generation. It was incredibly accurate as history has unfolded and confirmed all of the things that they had passed down from generation to generation, all the historical um, instances. But um, we don't have anything written down, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Matthew tells us that it was spoken of by multiple prophets. Um, The apostle John says specifically in his gospel in John 21, 25, it says, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. That's pretty incredible 
just the things that we read are pretty out, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it's outstanding. But he says there were so many that happened, I don't even think that you could write them all down. This kind of falls in that category too. Then Jude, the brother of Jesus, writes this in his letter. Um, it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, seventh from Adam, that prophecy came all the way down through the years, all the way to Jude, and then all the way down to you and me. So all these were passed down. We have nothing, we don't have a book of Enoch, okay? But that was passed down. Pretty amazing. Joseph brings his family to Galilee and they settle down in his hometown. Um, That's where they were originally. I can tell you just from a minute experience, we lived in this neighborhood for like 10 years. We moved away. Uh, for like, I don't know, two years, and then we moved back. We now live in a house that's one street behind where our old house was. We moved back into the same neighborhood. It's kind of weird. Fortunately, nobody hated us there. So that would have been kind of strange, moving back into the neighborhood. Nazareth was about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, uh, so not a short distance. And it was inhabited by people who were known for their crude and violent behavior. That's what the people were known as. It was kind of uh, a hick town. Kind of backwoods is where Nazareth was. Uh, it had long been a derogatory term to describe the people who came from there, the kind of people that were crude and kind of violent. You may have heard the, the term Cretan. Like, man, that guy is a Cretan. Well, there actually was a place called Crete. There is a place called Crete. And it described the people that lived there. Not a real complimentary term. Apparently, they weren't too bright. But in this instance, the word... Nazareth was synonymous with uh, rejection. It was not a favorable name. Uh, that's why when Philip, when Philip went to Nathaniel and said, we have found the Messiah, and he's a guy and he comes from Nazareth. That's why he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Kind of like saying, can anything good come out of Arkansas? <laughs> Nothing good could come out of Arkansas or Excelsior. <laughs> except Mark and Christy, except for Laura. Sorry. See, God works. Oh, okay. <laughs> Booing. Wow. The religious people that he actually took this as a sign that he could not be the Messiah if he came from a place called Nazareth. He could not be the Messiah if he came from there. But obviously this was prophesied ahead of time. If they had looked back into the, you know, genealogical records, they would have found he actually wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem, which is where they should have been looking for him the whole time. We're told in the Old Testament that, this, that he would be despised and rejected by men. The prophet Isaiah says this, chapter 53, 3-5, through five, he says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The fact that he was called a Nazarene spoke of his rejection by the people. Out of this lowly and despised city, the royal son of God grew up with his earthly parents for some 30 years. Now, check this out. Now, again, when I say 
I learned this stuff at the same time. I, I learned this stuff in the middle of the week. I'm like, I'm so excited. I can't wait to share this with you guys on Sundays. The word Nazareth, scholars tell us, comes from the Jewish word Nazare. Okay, Nazareth comes from the Jewish word Nazare, which means branch or shoot. That's what Nazare means. Remember last week we read from Zechariah that the branch would come forth and remove the sins of the people and rule over Israel forever. Then this in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Is that incredible? And he settles in a little place called Nazareth, which means branch or shoot. Jesus goes there as a young boy, just a shoot, sprouting out of a stump. Things did not look good under Roman occupation. They looked like a dead end. But here comes the shoot that would grow into a branch, the branch who would take away the sins of the people in a single day. But before salvation came rejection, even as a baby, and then obviously when he became a man. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was rejected so that you and I could be accepted and never abandoned. He was scorned by man, but then he went to heaven and was glorified. There are saints all over the world today that feel rejected and scorned by man, but eventually they will stand in his presence and be glorified. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You guys can come back up. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Only salvation, forgiveness, breakthrough, healing, new life. Can anything good come out of my life? Can anything good come out of my situation, my Nazareth, my mess? See, Nazareth is no longer associated with crude rebels. It's associated with Jesus. And that's what happens when Jesus gets a hold of you and I. We're no longer associated as rebels, enemies of God. We are now children of God. We have a new identity because of his presence in our lives. Spiritual highs are a lot of times followed by real earthly lows. But if we walk with Jesus, we can have joy. Do what God has asked us to do and then rest. Do what he's asked us to do. Listen for his voice and then rest. Wait for further instructions. God has made provision for us in this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Then the arrival of Jesus causes separation, causes pain. But that separation is sanctification. It's being set apart. It's being called into holiness. When things were sanctified, when they were called holy, they were set apart. They were separated from everything else. And you and I, as Jesus followers, have been called holy. We are being sanctified, set apart. There's a separation that takes place. Can anything good come out of our situation? When Jesus walks into that situation, when he resides there, the answer is yes. Good can come out. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what is happening in your life today, if Jesus is in there, fruit will be born out of that situation. Amen? I learned this song this week. Elena said she was going to uh, introduce a new song. We introduced songs 
uh, fairly regularly, and I know it can be kind of difficult sometimes when we don't know the, the words, but you know, it says, I'm standing on, you know, this song by Phil Wickham, standing on the, you know, chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. His name transformed Bethlehem from a place of death to a place of life, transformed Nazareth from a place of rejection to a place of, you know, life and acceptance where Jesus grew up. And just a a good reminder as we sing through this one more time that when he walks into our lives, we're standing on the powerful name of Jesus that transforms our situations, transforms our identity, and who we are in him. Amen. Joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and